Thank you, Katie. Good morning, College Park. So glad you're here today. Take your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew 13 and uh, get to work on our passage this morning. Verses 44 to 53 is our text. How much is the gospel worth? Please join me as we pray. Father in heaven, I pray today that you would do what only you can do by your word and through your spirit, and that is to give fallen, depraved human beings spiritual eyesight to see what they wouldn't see if left to themselves. Lord, the reality is we know our own hearts, and we would love, value, and esteem all of the wrong things as as much more worthy than what we're about to hear, unless you sovereignly and supernaturally and spiritually open our ears, open our eyes, and change our hearts. And so I pray today might be the day of conversion where someone in this room or over the internet or hearing this message months, weeks, years from now, Lord, that you would open their eyes to the reality of what the gospel is and that today they could be born again and renewed. And then, Lord, for those of us who've known this reality of the gospel for many years, we pray today it would take on a fresh, new, and joyful meaning and that we could live in light of its glory in light of its power, and in light of its freedom. So God, help us to esteem the gospel for what it is truly worth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we come to the end of Matthew's largest collection of parables in the entire gospel. And we're going to continue our study in this theme of enigma, trying to figure out these strange words and sayings of Jesus over the next number of weeks. But We're closing a small little chapter here within this series on these parables. And we've learned that the parables have a dual purpose. They serve to illumine truth to believers and also to hide that truth from non-believers. And we've learned some things about the kingdom over the last number of weeks. We've learned from the parable of the sower that the seed goes out, the word of God goes out, and it lands on different hearts. And only those who receive it and it produces something, only those that have growth because of that seed have really, truly understood the kingdom. We also saw in the parable of the wheat and tares that um, the gospel comes forth and God's vindication is delayed, meaning his judgment, his separation of the wheat from the weeds um, is not taken place yet. The third thing we've seen so far is the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, that small things can have great impacts. A small seed can produce a great tree, a little bit of leaven can leaven the whole lump. And so this is the nature of Christ's kingdom. A little gospel has an enormous effect that can permeate a person's entire life, a family, and even a country. So we're going to be looking at a number of parables in the months to come because there's other spots in Matthew's book where he records parables like Matthew 18 through 25. But what we have here is that Matthew now wraps up this collection of these parables and he ends in a very interesting way. He ends identifying the real worth of the kingdom. It's as though he comes to the end and wants to show us in a rather unique way from all the other gospel writers the way in which the kingdom of heaven is worthy of our affections, 
why it is worthy of sacrifice. And then I think in his mind, he must have the words of Jesus in the back of his head, where Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is going to say things like this all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Hard, difficult, challenging statements. And it's as though Matthew wants us to know that when those hard moments come, when those dynamics are presented, where the kingdom of heaven is is lifted up as worthy of sacrifice, worthy of your allegiance, worthy of, of supreme value, that in those moments that we should consider carefully the true worth of the kingdom of heaven. So the entire message this morning could be summarized in this simple statement that nothing is more valuable than the gospel. And oh, my hope and prayer today is that if you know this gospel, that you will fall in love with it in a whole new way, that you would agree with David, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And if it is that you don't know this gospel, my prayer today for you specifically has been that God today would open your eyes, he would draw you to himself, and you would see the supreme value of this gospel beyond anything else in this world, and that you would see Christ more lovely than you've ever seen him before. And my prayer is that that will take place today. So, the gospel, why is it valuable, or how is it valuable? There's three things we're going to see in this text. The first is that the gospel has a value that eclipses everything. That word eclipse is an important word for me because I feel like it captures what the gospel, and and really a lot of the teaching of the New Testament does, is it takes things that are in this world and it eclipses them, it it covers them, so that a a new value set, a, a new worth Something that now is lovely in a whole new way comes on the scene. Two parables that we'll look at first, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price, both turn on the discovery of something valuable and both then show extraordinary actions on the person who's discovered it to gain that treasure or that pearl. So first, the parable of the treasure. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a treasure that is hidden in a field. Verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. So what happens here apparently is a man, who we can only assume is not the owner of the land because of what he does next, is working the land and apparently stumbles across, uncovers a treasure, which then leads him to cover it back up. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, you need to know that during Jesus' time, there were um, many precious items and even money were stored in the ground. And the reason was, is that in order to protect yourself from an invading army or from thieves, and with the lack of secure banks, although that's kind of a funny phrase to put together nowadays, isn't it? Um, with, with the lack of secure banks... Um, people began hiding their things in the ground, which incidentally may begin occurring again. So it's just kind of an interesting thing how everything comes around. And, and what we're going to see is this, this pattern that happens in, in Matthew 25. We're going to see this again with the parable of the talents, where this steward is given a, a fairly large sum of money, and because of his fear, he puts it in the ground. And this was fairly common. And therefore, with all of these hidden resources in the ground, it wouldn't be that uncommon for a person to stumble across buried treasure, which if you're a kid or a child and you're reading and hearing this today, that ought to make you really encouraged and excited that in the Bible, there's like buried treasure stories. That's 
All God's kids said, cool, right? So that just shows you this, this picture of what's going on here. This buried treasure. Now, some of you might wonder, wait a minute. So you tell me this guy, he's farming someone's field, he discovers a treasure, and then he just buries it back up, and then he goes and buys this field. In fact, that's what the text says. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. You might think, well, how's that ethical? A couple things on that. First, remember that every parable has one real singular point, and Jesus isn't using this story as an ethical example. Rather, he's telling a story to make another point. So don't get too hung up on the dynamics. The second thing is, is that in the rabbinic law, if a person came across money or other valuables, he or she was allowed to keep them. So you remember that little thing you said as a kid, finders, keepers, losers, weepers? Well, at least you now have some background and authority for that. Even the rabbis ascribe to finders, keepers, losers, weepers. But I'm sure they said it more kindly than that. Finally, notice that the man doesn't just simply take the treasure, which he surely could have, hidden it and not told anybody. What does he do? He buries it back up and then goes and buys the property that it's on. So all of that to say that I don't really think that there's an ethical issue that's in play here. In fact, Jesus is just using this man as an example of something more. And his point that he really wants to make is found in the latter part of verse 44, where it says this, Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, the most important word in that little sentence is the word joy. The verse indicates that joy has a critical role in the radical actions of this man. It says, then for joy in what he has found, he goes and sells all that he has. So notice there that joy is not the fruit of his actions. He doesn't go and sell all that he has, grab the treasure, and then is full of joy. No, it says, then in his joy he goes and sells. Rather, joy is not the fruit, it is the root of his actions. It is not the effect of his actions, it is the cause of his actions. So joy here is not incidental, it is central. And this is really important to understand what is going on in this text. The man acts with no reluctance, no hesitations, even though his actions of selling everything are very radical. In fact, he says that he does it happily. The joy of what he has discovered compels him to go and sell all that he has because he knows what he will gain. And therefore, the joy of what he has found eclipses everything that would cause him to hold on to the possessions that he would have to release in order to gain this mighty treasure. So, therefore, this man is doing something that might seem foolish or extreme to others, while it makes perfect sense to him because he knows the surpassing value of this treasure, and therefore what he has discovered eclipses everything and thereby providing a motivation for what he does. Some of you who are in the investment world might recognize the name Jeff Green. Jeff Green um, saw a number of years ago the potential failure of the subprime mortgage bonds and sold his interest, much to the surprise and confusion of his peers, And when the housing market tanked, Jeff Green made $500 million in a series of few trades. He was able to see and guess as to what was going to happen and was willing 
because of what he could see, to make decisions that others would look at and say, what in the world are you doing? See, it's just a matter of what you see. And what Jesus is saying here is that this man, when he discovers the treasure, for the joy of that treasure, willingly releases all of his other goods in order to gain this one single treasure. So the treasure was far more valuable. It eclipsed the value of all that he had. The second parable makes the same point, but in a little different way. Rather than there being a treasure, it's a pearl. And while joy was the focus of the last parable, the singular nature of this pearl is the focus of this one. The parable of the pearl of great price differs in that here the merchant is actively searching for this pearl of great price, whereas in the previous parable, the person stumbled across it. See, pearls in Jesus' day, not unlike our own, were extremely valuable, and even the Bible uses a pearl as a, um, an emblem of wealth and great splendor. For example, Revelation 21 indicates that heaven has 12 gates, and they're made of pearl. This man, however, his livelihood is based upon finding these pearls, and the text says that when he found this one pearl, so he's got a collection of pearls, he's a pearl dealer, and then when he finds this one pearl, he sells everything he has, meaning he sells all of the other pearls in order to gain this one. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So what happens here is this newly discovered pearl has a worth that exceeds everything the man has ever found. And so he sells all that he has to gain one pearl. And once he had this one pearl, he didn't need any other. So therefore, this one singular pearl eclipsed the value of all all of the other pearls he had ever found all put together. So you get a buried treasure. And a man in joy of that treasure sells all that he has to buy the field. You have a pearl of great price that is incomparable to value of all the other pearls. So the man sells all that he has to gain this one pearl. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is valuable beyond our wildest dreams. Now, some of you may not have been a part of our series on the parables. So you might wonder, well, what is the kingdom of heaven? Let me remind you what the kingdom of heaven is. The kingdom of heaven is the reign and rule of God through the personal sacrifice of Jesus, whereby he makes peace with the creator God possible. That's the kingdom of heaven. It is where Jesus makes peace with God possible. So the reign and rule of God. And what Jesus is saying here is this, that the kingdom of heaven, this right relationship with your creator, meaning that he's holy and you're a sinner, and how you are reconciled to him, understanding this reconciliation between creature and creator is supremely valuable beyond anything else in this lifetime. In fact, Jesus says that it's so valuable that the joy of finding it, when you see it, when you know it, when you taste it, when you experience it, that it eclipses all other values, all other desires in this life. And Jesus says the gospel, that's another way to talk about the kingdom of heaven, the gospel is like a buried treasure and a costly pearl that when you see it for what it really is, and that happens By the power of the Holy Spirit, it is beautiful beyond anything else. So let me just help you understand something. Joy is not just a product of conversion. 
Joy is central to conversion. Joy is not just a product of conversion, it is central to conversion. What do I mean by that? I mean that the Bible tells us that there are immeasurable riches in the person and work of Christ. That he is exceedingly lovely, exceedingly wealthy, exceedingly rich in all the spiritual blessings that he is ready and willing and desiring to pour out upon sinful people and to make them right with their creator. But the problem is our sinful and natural bent is to be blinded by the power of Satan and the deceitfulness of sin. And the result is that in our natural and sinful state, we value, desire, esteem, worship, and take joy in the wrong things. Romans 1.25, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So what is sin? Sin essentially is taking joy in and loving something as more worthy or more glorious or more attractive than God. God says, here's my way, it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's attractive, it's holy, and you say, no, I like this way. I think this is the way to go. I think this is where it is. And therefore, the battle in the human heart is not just for right or wrong, the battle in the human heart is over which is the right joy. What is really lovely? What's really attractive? What's really desirable? And the beautiful thing is that in conversion, when the Holy Spirit comes, the gospel, this good news about who Jesus is, it is seen for what it really is. And that's what happened when you received Christ, when God opened your heart to the gospel, you saw that Christ was lovely and you saw your sin and you ran to him. And the reason you did was because your eyes were open and you saw the glorious reality of who he is. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, or 4, 6 says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. This is the Creator. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen to that. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in the midst of your darkened heart, God shines a beam of light where your heart sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what happens in this moment is a work of God's grace where a person sees with joy now the full beauty of who Jesus is. So then receiving Christ as Savior comes as a person recognizes that Jesus is indeed Lord. He is indeed Savior. And the Holy Spirit's the one that helps the person to see that. So conversion means many things, but it means... That you see the glorious reality of who Jesus is through a new set of eyes. And repentance comes. So that means, beloved, that repentance is not some half-hearted, well, I guess I'll go this direction, and yeah, I guess I'll go this way, and I guess I'll turn from my sins. I sure liked my sins, but now I'm going to go this direction. Repentance isn't like that at all. Repentance is a, a work of God where He shows you your sin, and you see Christ, and your mind is changed, and you say, why would I want to be here when I can have Him? And you run from your sin and you run to Christ, not half-heartedly, but with the whole person and the whole mind and the whole heart. And you say to Jesus, if I can't have you, I don't want anything because of how beautiful and glorious you are. That is repentance. Not some sort of half-hearted, weak-kneed, reluctant pursuit of Christ. It means that your eyes are opened and you behold the beauty of who He is. And that means that if repentance isn't like that for you when you came to Christ, allegedly, 
Or even now, the battle in our hearts is to maintain that that understanding of repentance, to fan into flame our affections for Christ. The question then could be, do you really know what repentance is? It's not something that you do in your will, in your heart, and I will repent. It means God has changed your heart and your mind, and now what was ugly is now attractive, and what was attractive is now exceedingly ugly. This is the value of the kingdom. So the attractiveness of the treasure of the gospel comes as a man or a woman turns from his or her sin, and there now is then nothing more attractive, more appealing, more glorious, or full of absolute joy in the heart of a person who embraces this, than to know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And when you understand that, when you get that, that news eclipses everything. It takes over your life transforms everything that you see because it is a value that eclipses everything. Now secondly, the third parable is about a fishing net and we move from something that's joyful and glorious to something that is rather fearful. The next parable is a strong warning. It's similar to the parable of the weeds and the wheat, but here it's more of a focus on the separation that will take place at judgment, not just the delayed judgment. And what Jesus is driving at here in this parable is that there are decisions that you make now that have eternal consequences. And my hope and prayer is that some of you will hear this and you will be unsettled in your apathetic valuing of Christ in this lifetime. Let me explain the parable. The parable is often called the parable of the dragnet, and that's because this was not a, a little fishing net that you'd put in the water or even one that you'd throw in the water and try and gather fish. This was a very, very large net, almost like a commercial fishing operation. usually involved two boats or an anchor at the shore and a boat out in the water. And what would happen is this boat, this, this net would have floats on the tops, anchor on the bottom. They'd drag the net way out. And then the boat would come back to shore, forming an arc, and then they would begin to pull the net into shore. And anything that was between the two points of the net would be pulled into shore. And and that could have meant anywhere in the Sea of Galilee from 20 different species of fish, and many of those fish were not able to be eaten. And so the fishermen would then, on the shore, separate the good from bad. They would take the bad and they'd throw it away, and they'd keep the good as a part of their catch. Now Jesus makes the parable very clear painfully so look at verse 49 he says so it will be at the close of the age the angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place there will be there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth so as we saw last week the this event is at the end of the age it's the day of judgment a day that is coming when the risen christ will serve as judge over the entire world He will separate those who belong to him from those who don't. And there will be no arguing with him. No making your case. At this point in time, it's over. There's two passages in Matthew that highlight this. I want you to turn to them so you can see this. Turn to Matthew 7 and verse 21. In the first case, we're going to see a text that talks about separating those who belong to him because they know him. In spite of what they do or what they say, the question is, Do they really know who Jesus is? 
Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Translation, not everyone who says, I'm a Christian, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Little sidebar, that doesn't mean that salvation comes because you do the will of the Father, but rather it means that you understand who Jesus is, and when you understand who he is, that doing the will of the Father is implicit in having a personal relationship with Jesus. So it's doing the will of the Father is the product or the evidence, if you will, that you really understand who Jesus is. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So these people are doing ministry. And verse 23 is the kicker. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Put it down somewhere in your mind that those people who do good things but they don't really know Jesus in a personal way, their good deeds are actually sinful because they're not done for God's glory. And so Jesus says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, one's personal response to Jesus determines one's eternal destiny. Now go to Matthew 25, verse 31. Here's another passage where Jesus is saying the same thing. And the point that I'm trying to make here is for you to understand that the decisions that you make in this lifetime about who Jesus is and the value that you place on him and your response to him and his claim as Lord have eternal consequences. This is a big deal. In fact, this is the question that all of us have to wrestle with. What have we done with Jesus? Verse 31, Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. The king will say to those on his right, these are the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And Jesus will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, if you really understand the glorious reality of who Jesus is, you're not just transfixed with the beauty of who Jesus is as separated from how you live your life. It is that understanding the beauty, glorious nature of who Christ is has a tangible effect of what you see in your world. There's a connection, says James, between faith and works. And then goes on, and then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse to the into eternal fire prepared from for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison or did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus intends here and in Matthew 7 and in Matthew 13 for there to be a sober understanding 
of the value decisions that we make in this lifetime. Matthew 13 describes a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of constant torment. I want you to, to feel the weight of that phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The only time in my life that I can think of a moment when, when I was gnashing my teeth because of misery was I was working outside and was moving a um, railroad tie so I could mow our lawn, and I threw it off to the side, and when I threw it, it slipped, and so I tried to grab it and throw it, and when I did so, a piece of the railroad tie timber broke off, and it jammed inside my fingernail underneath it. And when I looked at it, that's what I did, I went, ah. Oh. And, and then I thought, you know what, that's not good. It was jammed all the way up to the, the white stuff. I don't know what that's called, but just so you know, it really hurts up there. And it was, it was jammed in there. And so I thought, i got to get this thing out. So I took some tweezers, and I, I tried to, to jam it underneath my fingernail to try and pull it out. And sure enough, I got a little piece of it, started to pull it, and it broke. And so it's broken halfway up my fingernail. And then I knew, i got a problem. So I brought it to my wife, and I said, look at this, look at this. And she said, you want me to try? I was like, no, 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 don't you dare touch this. And so I, I'm sticking that underneath there, and I'm pushing it as far as I can go. And I can barely get it, just, I mean, a millimeter underneath my fingernail. And I am jumping up and down in our kitchen going, ow, ow, and my kids are laughing. I mean, it's just, it's just, and it hurt. I went to the ER, and the doc said, wow, that looks like it hurts. I'm like, yeah, it does. Fix this right now. It kills and so gnashing of teeth, what's, what's funny in that illustration is actually terrifying in the context. And that means this, that hell is real. Listen to me. The decisions that you make in this lifetime about who Christ is has eternal consequences. And you can try and assuage your guilt and push down the thought of what will happen in the future. But the reality is the text says what it says. And one day you're going to have to give an account for your life. And if you don't know who Christ is, your punishment is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Valuing Him has eternal consequences. There's a warning to those who would live their life as if Jesus was worthless or foolish or pointless. Because in the end, the Bible tells us that everyone will acknowledge that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That will be a glorious day for those who know Him as our King, and it will be a fearful day for those who have counted Him to be foolish and pointless. The parable is a warning that the dragnet of judgment will come and your perspective about the worth of Christ and his kingdom has eternal consequences. In other words, what you do with Jesus determines your eternal destiny. I remember sharing Christ one time with a man, and he thought that you just got to heaven by doing good deeds. And I countered that and said, well, that's not how I understand the Bible to teach. And I said, I think that the Bible says that the only people who really get into heaven are those who have a right relationship with Jesus by receiving him as Savior and Lord. And I said, you know what the problem is with your view? The problem with your view is if you're right, I'm probably okay. But in my view, you're in big trouble. And I said, what do you think about that? And he said, yeah, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? (laughs) And at least he understood that it was a problem. The man didn't receive Christ, but... I'll tell you, there are many people who live in life as if that isn't a problem. And the warning here from Scripture is how you value Jesus could be an enormous eternal problem. 
So therefore, be careful what you do with Jesus. Be eternally careful what you do with Jesus. Third, the final parable is this interesting exchange between Jesus and his disciples. He says, have you understood these things? They say, yes. And then he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom is like the master of a house. What's interesting here is this parable is not about the kingdom of heaven anymore. It's actually about them. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like. He says every scribe in the kingdom is like a master of the house. So the parable is actually about them as to what kind of people they're supposed to be in light of what the kingdom is like. And from that I see that Jesus is talking about this kingdom having a value that demands passionate explanation. Let me explain. He says that his disciples are scribes which is really interesting that he would say that because oftentimes scribes were not viewed very positively by Jesus. As well, it's interesting because the disciples were not from the um, intellectual crowd. And what it seems here is that Jesus has a plan for his disciples that involves them being teachers about the kingdom. He says this, Therefore, every scribe who's been trained in the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. He suggests that a master of the house, when he's providing for people who live in his house, is going to bring out new things and old things. And the implication seems to be that the disciples, as the scribes in the kingdom, are going to help people understand the kingdom by bringing out new and old things. And this fits because Jesus all the time connected his teaching to the Old Testament. He said... I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And yet at the same time said, you've heard that it was said of old, but I say to you. So Jesus is constantly combining Old Testament and New Testament, old things and new teachings. This is what Peter did as well. When he preaches at Pentecost, he uses the Old Testament and then declares that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. It seems that what Jesus is talking about here is that there will be a new role for followers of his which is to boldly proclaim the message about the kingdom in fact think how this book ends it ends with the great commission where jesus says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me i've got it so go into all the world baptizing them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit what's the next word teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It means that the gospel deserves passionate explanation, and when men and women fully understood the beauty and the power of the gospel, they proclaimed it with a boldness and even a reckless abandonment because they were transfixed with the power of what they could see. The disciples in Acts chapter 4 are hauled before the Sanhedrin and they're told, don't you preach in Jesus' name anymore. And they said this, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. But we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. I love that. We cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. So listen, understanding and feeling the value of what the gospel is, that you are a sinner who has had your sins forgiven by the shed blood of Christ and you've seen the beauty of who Jesus is and you know that he's far more attractive and lovely than all of the trappings that sin offered you and you have seen your heart been set free by his power, understanding and savoring and loving and rejoicing in that reality will loose your tongue to preach Christ to people. 
Guilt will not work to motivate you for evangelism. But joy will. So you fan your heart into flame for the glory of Christ. And when someone declares something in your presence that provides an open door, you blow through that door because of the joy of what you've got. Pray that God would give you the joy of your salvation, not just so you could be happy, but so that you could be an aggressive evangelist for his kingdom. But there's one other way that we declare and preach and explain this kingdom. We declare, beloved, the value of the gospel when we suffer. When we suffer. Over and over, the Bible calls us to value the gospel. This thing of being formed in the image and likeness of Christ. And he calls us to value becoming like Christ over an easy life. And when suffering comes, the fulcrum of decision that you have to make in your heart is this. What do I really love? There are some of you who are in the valley of affliction. You're in the midst of a hardship. And and the word from the Lord, from this text today, simply is this. Oh, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and even the fellowship of His suffering. That you could see the beauty and the power of what it means to want to be like Christ, no matter what the cost or how hard the valley or how painful the circumstances. Over and over, Romans 5, 3, we are called to rejoice in suffering because it produces endurance. Matthew 5, we are to rejoice and be exceedingly glad in persecution because great is our reward. James chapter 1 says that we are to consider all joy when we encounter various trials. The book of Hebrews commends the church because they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods at the hands of wicked people because they knew they had a better possession in heaven. You see, this is the joyful hope. It means that the value of the gospel was never meant to make followers of Jesus soft or cushy or comfortable or arrogant. No, it means that the supreme worth of the gospel was meant to liberate us from petty, temporary, valuing valuing things in this life so that we could courageously follow Christ, be like Him in our life, in our death, and especially in our joy. It means that when hardships or difficulties come, you know whom you have believed in, and there's enough, there's something in your life that nobody can take away the power and the reality of who Jesus Christ is to you. Nobody can touch that. Nobody. It is the writer of Hebrews who calls us to run with endurance while looking to Jesus, who, listen, who for the joy sat before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What are we called to do? We're called to look at the finished work of Christ. We're called to behold the penalty of sin. We are called to behold the beauty of the joy set before us. And we are to run the race like He did. To behold the joy to take glory in and rejoice in the reality of what He has done. And so we have to see what He saw which is this plan of redemption so beautiful, so glorious, so infinitely valuable that it is worth any and every sacrifice. It was Polycarp, a disciple of John the Apostle, who 
refused to burn incense to the emperor of Rome, so he was tied to a stake with firing kindle underneath him. And as the executioner was getting ready to light the, the wood underneath his feet, said to him, Polycarp, renounce Christ. And Polycarp said this, 86 years I have served Christ. He has done me nothing but good. How then could I curse my Lord and Savior? Bring forth what thou wilt. Yes! So what is the gospel worth? It is worth everything. And its beauty is a value that when you understand what it's worth and when you see it for what it is, you can triumphantly say, all I have is Christ. And that is enough. Because when all you have is Christ, you have everything you will ever need. And therefore, your declaration has to be, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. So Lord, hallelujah, all we have is you. And we know that many of us in our minds, but some, Father, need to live like that today. And I pray that you, right now, by your Spirit, would pour grace into the hearts of men and women who are in the middle of a valley and they feel like everything is lost. And would you remind them that there is joy when all you have is Christ. Oh Lord, I pray for... Lord, there there has to be people in this room today who don't know you and this very moment you are opening their eyes to behold the beauty of who you are you are drawing them to yourself and there is a gloriousness that they can now see that they couldn't see before and i pray that you today would convert them and cause their hearts to flee from sin and run to christ oh lord gird us with this truth that hallelujah all i have is christ lord i pray today that you would pour that reality into the hearts of a man or a woman here today just so clinging to survive every day. And today would you remind them all you have is Christ and that's all you'll ever need and give them hope. And Lord, for those who today can hear that, can see those words but don't know the reality of that, I pray that today would be a day that they see and savor all that is available to them in Christ, if they would but see and look and believe and turn. And so, Father, we bless you for all the riches we have in the person and work of your Son. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. Listen, if there's a need in your heart this morning and you need to pray with someone afterwards, there'll be some folks up here who'd love to be able just to pray with you and rally around you in terms of God's grace in your heart. So, Father, we bless you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I love you.